Um, and it's a joy to be stood in front of you. Students, welcome back. It's so good to have you. Uh, Core Church, you've been with us all year round. Yeah, it's been great to keep you. Uh, why, don't we, um, why don't we get into scripture, shall we? Since last August, Kingdom Vineyard has been traveling through a series of sermons on the kingdom of God. We've been traveling through the book of Acts of the Apostles. That's found just after the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in your Bibles. And more than one of our speakers has made the point that this book could well have been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, given that it's Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, who is the one most powerfully at work in the actions that we've been reading about. Jesus' faithful followers have become his faithful sent ones, which is what the word apostles means. And these faithful sent ones have obediently stepped out of their comfort zones and into situations where they've had to trust God to use them and to protect them. And the results? Well, here we are today. This morning, I wanted to take the opportunity to pause our journey, to rest a while, and to look back on the land that we've traveled over during the past year. Like when you go for a walk and find a particularly good bench. I took this photo myself. There's a really handsome castle in the distance. Rachel took this photo herself. There's a really handsome castle in the distance. Good. It's a team effort, this pastoring business. I seek to offer us a recap, a view, of our walk through the story of the kingdom of God so far. And if you've been away for the summer, or if you're new to us this morning, a special welcome to you, this might serve as a handy landing point for you to catch you up with our core church members who've been with us all year round. Of course, in one talk this morning, I will feel, uh, I will fail, feel, fail, fall, incomprehensibly short of covering the year's worth of preaching, especially if I go on like that, that has led us up to chapter 13, verse 3 of the book. And so, I thoroughly commend to you the podcast sermons on our website that start from the 26th of August, 2018. In my best Netflix binge impression, today is intended as a previously in the book of Acts. <laughs> I've, um, I've disabled the skip recap. We begin our series and the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit by a very brief survey of the beginning of the book of Joshua. And if that seems like an odd place to begin, again, I particularly point you back to our website, to our podcasts, and to a sermon from the 23rd of September last year. Here's a screenshot. That's available for free at kingdomvineyard.com in which Jeremy offered some really interesting comparisons between these two books and this very helpful chart, which you can read online. The reason we began with Joshua as a springboard into the book of Acts was to hold up and take a look at the two different ways in which God has built his kingdom on earth. There are some really interesting parallels, similarities, and crucial differences to how God established his kingdom under Joshua and his kingdom on earth through Jesus. But to find out more, you'll have to go online. One advantage to this step back and review sermon is that we get the chance to look back at some of the themes, some of the broad brushstrokes that are best seen from our benchy vantage point, some patterns or messages that are particularly visible when we look over a large chunk of scripture that are less obvious when we travel through giving attention to detail verse by verse as we do every other Sunday. Today, the question that I want to ask of the book of Acts for us 
is, what sort of relationship with God do these apostles have? If you're a note taker, that's a good place to start. What sort of relationship with God do these apostles have? And I have four observations that I'd like to offer you about these apostles' relationship with God, as we've seen it so far in the first 12 and a bit chapters of Acts. They are these. Purity, dependency, power, and purpose. Firstly, purity. God's people were to dedicate themselves to a pure and undivided loyalty to him. No compromise. Nothing else to have any hold on them except their relationship with God. And when God's people did compromise on their purity with God, things went badly for them. Secondly, dependency. God's people were to depend, to rely completely on him for their leading, for their provision, and for their protection. Thirdly, power. God's people throughout the book of Acts were filled with his supernatural power, gifts of supernatural knowledge, supernatural healing, plenty of miraculous signs. The presence of God within them by his Holy Spirit empowered them to be able to do wondrous things with God and for him. And fourthly, a purpose. God wasn't just playing with his sent people, although in my experience, God is pretty playful as well. Nor were his people just playing with his presence and power. God had given them a purpose to live for. His people were called to a crucial mission of carrying his kingdom into this broken and hurting world and spreading God's presence and his kingship to the ends of the earth. Or to put numbers three and four together, as Uncle Ben said to Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. Two Spider-Man fans, great. <laughs> That's fine. One, one Spider-Man fan. Any, any fewer? No? Great? No? Great. Hallelujah. It's not really the point of the talk, but I'm glad we paused there. As we travel back over the path of the book of Acts then, I would love you to keep these four observations in mind to test the scriptures as we travel through them against these to see if I've got it right. To look out for examples where these principles pop up. If you have a Bible or a Bible device with you, please open it to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1, and be prepared to scroll. Verses will flash up on the screen far too quickly for you to read and in far too small a font. So I endorse your handheld Bible and or device. Without further ado, shall we attempt a skipping stone survey of the first 12 chapters of the act of the Holy Spirit in not many minutes? Yes, great. <laughs> Acts chapter 1 verse 3. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself alive to his followers by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The book of Acts begins with Jesus after his death and his resurrection, teaching his friends and followers about the kingdom of God. And from there, the book moves on to Jesus through his Holy Spirit, giving them the kingdom of God and leading them out with it. Verses 4 and 5, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. Depend, depend on him. This, he said, is what you've heard from me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
again, the acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is key to this book. He's the key to the continuing story of the unrolling of the kingdom of God into broken creation. Where the state of painful brokenness and longing for God's restoration to come that we know so well is met by the inbreaking presence of God himself. And that tension, as we say in the vineyard, is the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Continuing in chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples say, Jesus, is now the time for the kingdom of God to come to God's people? In verse 8, Jesus essentially says, yes, you are the kingdom carriers for Operation Kingdom Come. On you go. And verse 8, if you like, is the key to the whole book. Jesus lays it out. Verse 8, you, he says to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Again, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, (laughs) Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Great. That verse describes the rest of the book. Holy Spirit-powered witnesses taking their story of Jesus and the presence of God with them in increasingly wider areas. Let's hop on through Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Jesus' disciples are faithful in prayer. They wait obediently. They do some important housekeeping to reorganize the team for the mission ahead. And then chapter 2, Pentecost. Here, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised in chapter 2, verse 4. We see that there. And in chapter 4, sorry, chapter 2, verse 4, and also in verses 7 and 8, notice that this isn't just exciting and fun. This is a languages miracle, a communication miracle. These sent ones are sent to the whole world. Operation Kingdom Come is not just fun. It's a mission. But but even amongst this, we see in verse 13, despite the miracle that's just happening before it, at the bottom of this page, on verse 13, others mocked. Even in the midst of God so miraculously at work, one bloke has stood over there going, I can't understand it. This guy doesn't know my language, and he's telling me about Jesus in my language. And the person stood across from him going, nonsense. Baffling. Even as one exclaims a miracle, the other one shouts abuse. Can you get your head around that? But, friends, it's to be expected. Opposition, even baffling opposition, is nothing unusual in God's mission. And actually, it's really reassuring to find it in Scripture here. As John Wimber used to say, it's just people doing people stuff. Skipping on, verse 17 of chapter 2. Peter, giving a talk to everyone who's come to hear what this miraculous gabble is, quotes the prophet Joel's promise, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, says God. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. There'll be vision. There'll be dreams. God is now throwing open access to heaven, just as he said he would. Verse 21, Peter finishes the quote of Joel's prophecy by saying, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How are we doing for speed? Is this all right? Yeah? You following just about? Good. Everyone scrolling? Not at me? Great. It's like a Churchill advert. Remember those? Oh, very good. Great. (laughs) Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's God's mission, again. Acts, God's plan, God's very heart 
is about his kingdom reaching people and all the freedom, the joy, the life that comes when that happens. Verses 22 to 36 continue Peter's sermon, and it concludes in verse 36 with a clear claim. Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. God has sent his anointed Savior, and it's Jesus. Let me tell you about him, says Peter. The people get it. They see that it's real, and they are cut to the heart. What do we do? How do we respond to this? Well, Peter gives us a very handy guide to follow for when you discover that God is real. He says in verse 38, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the Holy Spirit. And handily, Peter promises that this promise is even for us today. That's good. Verse 41 we find out that after this moment, about 3,000 people commit to follow Jesus and join his community. Brilliant. And then we take a little pause. In verses 42 to 47, we get an insight into what it was like to be part of this first gathering of Christ followers in Jerusalem. We get to look at the culture, the flavor of this Holy Spirit-filled group. So, what was the community like? It was devoted to the apostles' teaching, Devoted to their gathering, devoted to communion with one another, devoted to prayer, filled with the awe of God, many signs and wonders being done. They were all together, and everything they had was shared. They were faithful, and they were regular in worshiping God together. They praised God, and they were praised amongst the people. And they were a constantly, nay, a daily growing in this church here, arguably the model for the church, capital C, throughout time, in this church, I see a purity of relationship with God. I see a dependency on God. I see power. And I see purpose in this group. And I find their example a real encouragement and sometimes an awkward challenge. On to Acts chapter 3, and hot off the back of this description of what our ancestor church was like, we're next shown a miracle of the church in action, when Peter and John, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, healed a man who the Bible describes as having been lame from birth. In this story, and in fact in verse 6 in particular, we see Jesus' name being given glory very publicly. The crowds know this man as lame. They can back up this miracle, and they rush to see. Skipping on to verses 11 to 26, the crowds rush over and Peter uses the opportunity of this miracle as a springboard for sharing his witness testimony of who Jesus is and give people a chance to opt in for themselves. This, by the way, follows a pattern of uh, Jesus in the Gospels where he would teach and heal and teach and heal like a pendulum. We find out a little bit later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, that many who heard Peter's preach that day responded and believed. And about 5,000 were in the church, which is 2,000 extra and only counting the men. I know. On to chapter 4. Now in chapter 4, we find the first flavor of opposition from religious authorities. And in verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit as promised in Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, note takers, said to them, Jesus, that's the abbreviated version, 
In verse 16, the council wring their hands. We can't deny the miracle, so what shall we do? Tell them to shut up? Peter's answer is brilliant and a challenge for you and I today, friends. In verse 19, Peter answers them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I got Caitlin to make that for me. I think it's really nice. Well done, mate. It's nice. It's a bit like the t-shirts, but with a bit more C. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They weren't mucking about. We've, God's done this. What am I meant to do with that? Bury it? Nah. Nah. If God's nudging me forwards, if God's calling me forwards, and he's putting his power to this message as well, and you want me to stay quiet, we cannot keep from speaking about what we've seen and heard. These guys have a real purpose, and they're living it in dependency on God and in his power. In verses 25 and 26, the disciples and the early church are kind of processing this experience of opposition, and we see their first sad realization amongst the church that now it's their own Jewish religious leaders who are the Gentiles to them. Moving on to verse 29 and 31, the apostles' response to this opposition is to ask God to strengthen them for mission. And his response was to confirm his power. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen. <laughs> and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, purpose, dependency, power. And Acts chapter 5, purity. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, we meet the story of Ananias and Sapphira, a husband-wife dodgy duo who are semi-committed to this church community that they find themselves in, but they conspire to lie to the church, pretend they've given all of their cash, but squirrel away a small amount in secret. But dishonesty and selfishness was not to be tolerated amongst God's people. God judged them, judges the dishonest. And as God gives Peter the supernatural knowledge to call out the couple, when they refuse the chance to come clean and choose to stick to the lie, God strikes them down dead in that moment. This sneaky dishonesty is in direct contrast to Barnabas, who only a few verses before in chapter 4 verse 37 gives his whole property openly and honestly. So what's going on here? Is this a horrifying passage of a cruel and angry God being ungrateful for half gifts? Is this the passage that we should use to preach from when we're telling you to give financially? <laughs> we'll think about that. This is God in charge of his church, shaping and guarding its culture whilst it's still embryonic. God is saying integrity matters in this church. Purity of relationship matters in this church. This event being part of our Christian heritage is a huge challenge. The awkward sticking point in the glory story of the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit that God kills a couple rather than allow their double life to contaminate his church. 
For those of us who thought that sort of move was an Old Testament only act, there's an uncomfortable reminder that God is just as keen on purity in his people now as he was then. Skipping on. Through Acts chapter 5, 12 to 16, there are more fantastic mentions of God's people moving in God's power to achieve God's purposes with signs, wonders, deliverance ministry, and all types of healing. And people know about these Jesus people. Many watching on from a distance, no doubt intrigued, but not yet ready to make a half-hearted commitment, especially if they've heard about Ananias and Sapphira. And yet, in verse 14, we read that many do count the cost of discipleship and go all in. Verses 17 onwards, we get to another load of opposition from the authorities. These guys are now jealous of the attention that the Jesus crew are getting. And we meet round two of the Book of Acts, Apostles' Prison, Hokey Cokey. If we can have that slide, please. <laughs> round one, in Acts chapter four, verse three, they go in. In verse 21, they come out. Round two, in Acts chapter five, verse 18, they go in. And now, sponsored by an angel, in verse 19, they come out. In Acts chapter 12, in verse four, they go in. And verse 9, again with an angel, they come out. And I know, I know, this is a recap only up to Acts chapter 13, verse 3, but there's an earthquake, and the shake it all about thing works really well if you mention <laughs> chapter 16. I can retire now. That was the peak of my preaching career. Amen. <laughs> and Phil will be taking the rest of the service, so. <laughs> Hallelujah. Back in chapter 5 of verse Acts, from 17 onwards, this is the second brush with authorities who reject Jesus and resist the apostles' teaching. And this time it takes an angelic prison break to get them out, which also creates a lovely little slapstick with the authorities. The authorities, the prison guards, the prison, and the prisoners who are mysteriously in the temple preaching when they should be locked up. It's Laurel and Hardy level comedy, except that Jesus got there first. So... How do the apostles respond to this latest brush with their religious rulers, the trial and the beating that they get from them? Well, verse 41, as they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple, verse 42, and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah again. Authority said, no, stop, we'll threaten you, we will beat you. And these guys went, I've got a purpose. I've got a purpose, and I've got a God who's got power, and I'm going to go where he goes. I'm going to depend on him, even if it looks like walking right back in the middle of that. What purity that relationship with God must have. I don't really like getting beaten up, but these guys counted the cost and said, all right, if that's what it takes, Chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, begins with a need for this church, the growing church, to organize itself, to make sure that internal grumbles are managed and that everyone is served fairly. The, apost the apostles propose hosts in verses 2 and 3, so that there can also be those dedicated to being servants of prayer and the word, which, as a side note, is actually how we run our home groups. We have hosts who look after everyone's needs and comfort, as well as having leaders for exactly this reason. It's almost like we did it from the Bible or something. We find in verse 8 that Stephen, one of these new waiters, is a man filled with the presence of God. 
He performs many miraculous signs. And in verse 10, we find that he is a powerful, as in Holy Spirit-powered, preacher. Friends, a quick note to you who are plugged into Kingdom Vineyard and serving, but we may be not having a title hung around your neck at the moment. It doesn't matter. You get stuck in and serve, wonderful things will happen. God will use each and every one of you. You don't need to be given a title for it. You stick with him. You stick your shoulder in and get on with it. And you'll bless everyone around you, whether you've got a fun hat or not. We don't give out hats. <laughs> and many of you are serving like that. So thank you. Stephen so upsets a certain synagogue that they stir up lies about him and get him arrested, which leads to a trial where, thankfully, we have Stephen's long and powerful speech recorded. It's called Acts chapter 7. In such a whirlwind recap as this morning, we can only cherry-pick highlights, but again, let me point you back to the full sermons on our website. Stephen offers a theological challenge to the council. Verse 52, it was Jesus. It's always been Jesus. Verse 51, you missed him. It's God's Holy Spirit and you're forever missing him. And in verse 55, Stephen sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Well, suffice it to say, verses 54 and later in 57, the council take it badly. And verse 58 through to 8, verse 1, Stephen dies. He's murdered. And that's how we're introduced to Saul. Chapter 8. From the execution of power-filled, purpose-filled Stephen, who was faithfully serving God, from that execution, suddenly the simmering tensions against this Jesus group boil over and a great persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. Let's pause our tour for a moment and note a wider point here for the development of our church story in this book of Acts. This moment, this chapter 8 verses 1 to 4, marks a big shift in gear. Remember, I said it was the key verse for the whole book, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus told his followers that they would carry his power and serve as witnesses to him from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the world. That's this. This is the moment the church explodes out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, forced by persecution. Jesse, would you mind clicking us to the map? I found a handy map of Israel, which, there you go, lovely stuff. And if you zoom in one, or go on to the next page, beautiful, thank you. You've got Jerusalem, a dot in the middle, and the region, as you can see underneath it, of Judea, and the region above it of Samaria. Let's just hold there. Sometimes, when you're doing a bit of research online, you can come across the work of a profound scholar who's left a heritage for you to reap the riches from, and just that thing happened to me. So if we could click on. I was finding this beautiful piece of scholastic... Well, it's delightful. Um, and they've put a little line around it. Isn't that good? I can't tease. The handwriting's neater than mine. So from the unjust murder of Stephen and the rise in persecution, suddenly the Christians are forced into this next part of Jesus' mission. And signs, wonders, and people discovering God accompany this great exodus from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. In Samaria, verses 9 to 13, the apostles share their experience of Jesus, and show his power there so that many are convinced to follow Jesus and be baptized, including a local magician. We then have this curious little exchange in verses 14 to 19, where the apostles arrive to invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill these new Christians. Note that they didn't automatically receive him. There had to be something else going on in this moment. They had to lay their hands on them and invite the Holy Spirit in. Worth expanding on that. It's probably in our sermon archive. 
What happens next is that the magician tries to buy God's power. Oops. Verses 20 to 25, Peter is pretty firm. You cannot buy the presence of God. He gifts his Holy Spirit, and don't you dare try and profit from him. Cut scene to Philip in verse 26, who is sent by God to a desert road where God has arranged for Philip to be on hand to answer the passing member of the Ethiopian royal court's Bible study questions. Verses 34 to 38, Philip gets to the point, or gets to point out that the Hebrew Bible scriptures point to Jesus, and the Ethiopian wants to make a commitment to Jesus then and there. And then, one of these tantalizing hints of the sort of power that God can sometimes drop onto his faithful servants he seems to teleport Philip to a new location. In verse 40, Philip finds himself somewhere else in Judea, and so just gets on with preaching there. Acts chapter 9. And Saul, the head figure of a campaign to capture and kill all the people of Jesus, meets Jesus. Saul is blinded. He's made to be dependent on God. It's a moment of God showcasing his massive power to reach in and intervene. And verse 17 onwards, God uses Ananias, a different Ananias to Acts 5, obviously, to go and heal Saul. God did the blinding miracle by himself, but he sends Ananias to do the healing miracle. It's a lovely snapshot of God's power to move without us and his preference, as Jeremy put it so well last week, to move with us, through us. Jesus loves agency. God loves to involve us in his plans as often as he can. He's about the family business and getting his kids involved in running it. Whizzing through the next part of the story. Saul spends some time recovering and gaining strength as an apostle of Jesus and then goes right back to the synagogues, but this time to proclaim that Jesus is the real deal. In verses 26 to 31, Saul is introduced to the understandably nervous apostles by Barnabas, who sees what God is doing, and Barnabas takes a risk on trusting God, on trusting Saul, that was crucial for us getting to hear about Jesus, let alone Saul going on to write most of what we call the New Testament. Praise the Lord for Barnabas's. Meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up, they were living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Oh, hold those two together and chew on them for about four months. It increased in numbers. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. More acts of the Holy Spirit in the region of Judea and Samaria in chapter 9, 32 to 43. This time through Peter in Lydda and Joppa. There's a little map as well. There's Lydda and Joppa. They're up there. Lovely. A healing and a uh, resuscitation of someone who had died and God's fame spreading all the while. Things seem to be picking up pace, and there's more change to come. Chapter 10 sees another gear shift in Operation Kingdom Come. Now, non-Jews get the Messiah too. Verses 1 to 8 show God spreading his kingdom by sending an angel to speak to a Roman centurion, scandalous, in Caesarea to invite Peter over. In verses 9 to 16, as the centurion's men are on the way, God gives Peter a vision that challenges Peter's deep-held conviction of what is clean and what is unclean for a good Jewish man to associate with. A floating forbidden meat sheet, if you will. Peter proper ponders his perplexing prayer picture, but his pickle of an interpretation 
is interrupted by the centurion's men arriving to invite him to hang out with some unclean Gentiles. Eventually, Peter works out what God's been getting at and declares to his non-Jewish audience that, in verse 34, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Mind-blowing moment. Then, whilst Peter is still preaching, in verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. Best interruption ever. I would be well happy for the Holy Spirit to heckle me. (laughs) As it turns out, God wants his ancient people Israel's promised savior to in fact be the savior for the whole world. The Messiah for the Jews is the Messiah for yous, twos. Good news. That's right, we're nearly there, we're nearly there. Some of you have put down the pen and paper and just started praying and not, not with me. Amen. In chapter 11, Peter has some explaining to do to his friends and fellow sent ones who missed the floating forbidden meat sheet memo, and they need to be brought up to speed. By the time he's told his story in verses 15 to 18, they're on board. In verse 18, they say, when they heard this, their objections were silenced. And they praised God, saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Hallelujah. Similar scenes were playing out in Antioch as the Hellenists, that is the Greeks, were hearing about Jesus, were opting in, and forming a church that was sensitive to God's prophetic prompts. Barnabas is dispatched to investigate this church. He loves it. He grabs Saul to get involved in leading the church, and the church there grows and is noted for a prophecy and a generous response to need. Nearly there. Acts chapter 12 begins with King Herod. No, not that Herod. Not that Herod. The other Herod. Yeah, that Herod. Riding populist opinion and turning against the Christians. Peter is arrested. More prison hokey-cokey. And God sends an angel to sleepwalk him out of prison to the mind-blown delight of the church who are praying for it. And dared they even hope he might be answering that prayer. But there it went. Herod, meanwhile, is getting a bigger and bigger head, is glorified in the place of God, and it goes badly for him. An example, if you will, of someone whose life and relationship with God is not pure, not dependent on God, not in line with God's purpose, and therefore at the wrong end of God's power. Finally, as Jeremy shared with us last week, in Acts 12, verses 24 to chapter 13, verse 3, we have a lovely picture of the power of God through his church to contrast to the murky and counterfeit ways of power in this world, the end. Three, four, great. (laughs) Uh, What time is it? Great. (laughs) Okay. What have we just seen? What is the gist from our study of the acts of the Holy Spirit so far that has taken us a year and I've just butchered in 20 minutes, 25. I think we've seen a mighty God on a mission with power and purpose. He wants the world to know about what he's done for us and nothing, no nothing, is going to stop his sent ones speaking out as witnesses to Jesus with God's own presence through his Holy Spirit right there with them, backing up their words with miraculous power straight from heaven. 
We've seen a God who's generous with his presence and his power. And he's uncompromising that his kingdom needs to be carried out to more and more places and needs to not be muddied with shameful undermining of its integrity. God jealously guards his kingdom. He shares it freely and he expands it beyond the comfort zones even of his own people, but he does not allow it to be diluted by evil. So God's people have to stay close to him, to guard their own purity, have to stay sensitive to his leading, have to stay dependent upon him for direction and protection. God's people have the great gift of God's power with which to carry out God's purpose, the bringing of his kingdom to more and more of the world around us, to the very ends of the earth. So friends, if you've had a moment to recover from the recap blast, I offer you a challenge this morning. How's your relationship with God? Is it characterized by a purity? Or is your Jesus following compromised somehow? How's your dependency on him? Are you more likely to fall back on savings or loans, parents or something or someone else before you trust God? How's your experience of God's power? I humbly suggest that sometimes, if the first two are shaky, that can have a knock-on effect to your experience of God's use for you for his miracles. But also, you can ask him for more. In fact, in just a moment, we'll invite you to come forward to receive prayer for anything you might like. And if you might like to hear God's voice more, to be open to him using you to heal people, we would love to pray for you for that this morning. And purpose. Why are you here? Why are you at church today? Or more generally than that, why are we here? What was I made for? You know, I think a lot of restlessness that people experience in 2019 in the Western world comes from not living in our God-designed sense of purpose. I want to live for Jesus. I want to dedicate my life, my energy, my money to being the closest and most loving, willing slave, adopted, precious son of God in Jesus that I possibly can be. I want to be a purity-defined, power-filled kingdom carrier of God's presence, depending on him, saying bold yeses to whatever he tells me to do. I want that to be my purpose. Or I want to want it to be, anyway. What else is worth living for? If, like me, you might need to come back again to Jesus, to ask him to help you to reset your life's purpose, to repent, they call that, and to rededicate yourself to him, there's a space for you up at the front for some prayer in just a moment. The acts of the Holy Spirit are phenomenally inspiring. And of course, we've lots more of the book to explore. But, praise God, the story of God's work on earth is unfinished. The book's still being written today. 
and I want in. Why don't you stand? I would love to pray for you. Before I begin praying, I just want to um, remind and repeat that as soon as I finish praying, you're welcome to come and receive personal prayer. What will happen there is that members of this church who have been trained to pray lovingly and respectfully and to listen to God and who are accountable to us in home groups will come forward, put a hand on your shoulder and say, hi, can I pray for you? And you can have a wee chat with them. You don't even have to tell them what you want prayer for. It could be the worst looking week in your diary ever. It could be for more miracles, or it could be for something you need to get right with Jesus. But come forward and share it. Let's pray. Lord, for the times, the occasions, when we haven't been dependent on you, for the times when actually our relationship with you has been muddied rather than pure. We're sorry. Would you meet us this morning with your forgiveness? Lord, would you meet us with a new sense of purpose? Would you bless us with hearing your voice and your leading loudly and clearly? And would you bless us with the strength to opt in and to say, yes, I want that. Would you come, Holy Spirit? Even more of your presence. More and more of you. In Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to pray for you. Come forward right away.